You're listening to Zen Sandwich, a podcast for the independent mind and anyone who embraces life despite its absurdities. Join former attorney and professor turned Japanese papermaker Mark Reed each week as he talks with creative, inspiring, and influential people, or as he shares his own research to help make your world a little better today than it was yesterday. Hey, here we are. I have on a, uh, a previous episode made the statement that Stoicism and Zen are like philosophical cousins, family almost, little different personalities, but they, they look alike. They resemble each other. I might even throw Taoism in that mix as well. well. I will finally get an official ruling today on whether that's a fair analogy or not. Maybe not. That's okay. If I'm wrong, I, I'm happy to learn either way. Uh, either way, the ref here calls it. Let me tell you about the referee. It is a Super Bowl caliber referee. Dr. Massimo uh, Piliucci holds a doctorate in genetics, a PhD in biology, another PhD in philosophy, philosophy of science. He is a professor of philosophy at City College of New York. He's the author of 16 books, including uh, Answers for Aristotle, How Science and Philosophy Can Lead Us to a More Meaningful Life. His, uh, his 2015 essay for the New York Times which is entitled How to Be a Stoic. It's one of the most shared articles of the New York Times. Professor Piliucci is credited as being one of the driving forces of Stoicism's resurgence in the United States in the early 21st century. He's, he's that big. His, uh, his accolades are actually too lengthy to include in the time allotted here. He joins me now from New York. Uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to welcome Dr. Massimo Piliucci to the program. Thank you for your time, Professor. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I want to dive right in, um, but I may have many listeners who aren't really familiar with Stoicism. Uh, can, can you give us a, a cursory gist of the philosophy, perhaps uh, highlighting the role of virtue ethics and, and the dichotomy of control? Tell, tell people what that is exactly. So Stoicism is a uh, Greco-Roman Hellenistic philosophy. And actually, interestingly, I often present it as the Western equivalent or response to Buddhism. So uh, there definitely are similarities there, although there are major differences, as we, we might get into that, um, because they're, they're interesting. Both the similarities and the, and the differences are interesting. It is, as you say, a type of virtual ethics, which means that uh, it is a Socratic philosophy. It was directly inspired by Socrates. And it essentially, Stoics essentially believe that virtue, which they defined as excellence in moral character, is the only good, only true good in life. There are other things that we may want, such as, you know, health, wealth, education, money, uh, love, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, they refer, the Stoics refer to those as preferred indifference, meaning that they are preferred other things being equal, but they are morally indifferent because uh, being wealthy, let's say, or healthy or educated, it doesn't make you a, a good person or a bad person. It's entirely irrelevant to your moral status. And the only thing that really matters for the Stoics is uh, whether you work on your character, essentially. Mm. So that's the basic idea. Now, you mentioned the dichotomy of control. Dichotomy of control is one of the fundamental notions of Stoicism. And it basically says that in everything you do in life, you can look at any task or any project or anything that you're approaching to do, and you can divide, uh, you, can, you can break it down into 
uh, individual bits and com or components. And, and these bits and components will fall into two broad categories. The ones that are up to you, meaning where you have agency, where you can actually make a difference, and the ones that are not up to you, uh, where you don't have agency or your agency is very, is very limited. And the basic stoic idea is that the wise thing to do is to focus only on the bits where you can make a difference, only where you have uh, a certain degree of control, and simultaneously develop an attitude of acceptance and equanimity toward the things that you don't control. I, I have a friend, a good friend, that uh, he, he considers himself a practicing stoic. And, uh, and so I asked him, I, you know, I, I mentioned that I would be interviewing you, and that uh, I said, well, what questions would you have for uh, Professor Massimo? And uh, so he, he came up with two quickly. He, he had them on the ready. His first question is this. Let me just add, let me uh, just read it as he states it. I'd be very interested to hear his, your uh, take on how a stoic can relate and empathize with decidedly non-stoic people. Mm -hmm. For instance, one of my biggest struggles as a husband and a father is dealing with high emotional affectation um, you know, mm -hmm. uh, unnatural, insincere behavior among my wife and daughters. <laughs> yeah. Besides not really understanding what all the hubbub is about, I tend to want to impart stoic wisdom to them since it brings me so much contentment and peace, but right. it can be very difficult and I tend to get lots of accusations of, you just don't get it. <laughs> so I guess this question is, as a Stoic, how do you deal with people who just don't see the world that way? That, that is an excellent question. And actually, Epictetus, this, this second century Stoic that I mentioned a minute ago, has a direct answer uh, okay. to that question. There is, there is a bit in Epictetus, I uh, think it's in the, in the Enchiridion, in the Manual for, for a Good Life, where he says, if somebody is that you love, that you care for, is distraught. Let's say, for instance, uh, you know, is grieving for uh, for a, a loved one who died. Do not go and tell him, "Hey, this is all in your mind." <laughs> right. you, know, you should, you should, because because that's not helpful. No. In fact, Epictetus says, what you should do is to outwardly groan and or grieve in the same way, in the way in which he expects you to do it, hmm. because it's not about you; it's about him or her. Right. You're trying to help that person. But then Epictetus also adds, be sure, however, that you don't groan or grieve in the, in, inside. Oh. So in other words, you tell yourself, look, my wife or my daughter are having an emotional experience. Mm. The last thing that they want to hear from me is that, hey, get over it because this is not <laughs> rational. Right. That's not helpful. So in fact, what I should do is to try to empathize mm. uh, with them. Outwardly, if they expect me to, to look distraught, I should look distraught within limits. Of right, course. right. Within, yeah, within reason, right? Within reason. But yeah. inwardly, I should keep reminding myself, like, you know, they are actually mistaken. They, mm. They're not responding in the best way possible to the situation. But I want to be helpful because I love them. Therefore, this is what I'm going to do. Now, this may sound like, okay, so you're telling me basically to fake it. <laughs> right um and yes i am because <laughs> that is what you're saying <laughs> uh, because that's useful right so right. The, the goal here what you have to ask yourself what is your goal mm. is your goal to uh be condescending toward your loved ones uh to tell them something that you know they don't want to hear and they're not receptive to hear just because that makes you feel better or superior or is your goal to actually be helpful 
If the goal is to be helpful, then you should behave in the way that it's helpful to them, not to you. Yeah. Now, that said, once you start doing this, what the modern author uh, Bill Irvine calls stealth practicing stealth stoicism, that is, you're not telling them that this is what you're doing. Right. But once you start doing this, hopefully, they will, you know, at some point start paying attention and say, hey, I noticed that you're much more calm than you were, that you don't get upset. What's going on here? At that point, when they ask, you can say, well, let me tell you, have you ever heard of Epictetus? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So in other words, you certainly want, I, I completely understand the feeling of, hey, this is really great, um, works for me. I want it to work for other people. Mm. But you also have to understand that other people may not be ready. And yeah. that may sound like a condescending statement. I think it's just a statement of fact. Some yeah. people are not ready. Some people will never be ready. That and sort of and stoicism is, it's a philosophy, not a religion. I mean, there's, there's no motivation exactly. to, to, you know, uh, convert anyone. I, I actually want to go to the virtues uh, now since we brought them up. And here's my question about the four virtues. Um, as I mentioned, the four principal virtues in stoicism are wisdom, justice, courage, and moderation. To me, three of these four speak for themselves. They are prima facie virtues, wisdom, justice, and moderation. But I would like you, I would like to ask about the virtue of courage and stoicism. What is it? And, uh, and by that, I, you know, I doubt it means to blindly, carelessly engage in combat. If, uh, if Mike Tyson picks a fight with me, I, I, should I be courageous and do battle or, or do the, does the virtue of wisdom triumph here and I should run away? Right. Now, that's a good question. Uh, first of all, the, the first thing I think to point out here is that the Stoics, just like Socrates, believed in what is called the unity of the virtues. Even though they mentioned four different virtues, as you pointed out, and by the way, they actually mentioned sub-virtues within each one of those four. So the, the, sure. the full list is actually like 20 or 30. Uh, but those are the four big ones, the so-called cardinal virtues. Right. They actually think that these four virtues are all different aspects of one underlying thing, which we'll refer to as wisdom or virtue broadly speaking okay that means that they are deeply interconnected you cannot be courageous according to a stoic without being also just for instance which is why you're right you shouldn't be rushing into a fight with mike tyson just for the hell of it because that's not courage from a stoic perspective there may be bravery it may be you know you may be uh, or it may be fool foolishness, right. <laughs> uh, but it's certainly not courage in the moral sense. Courage has an inherently moral component built into it. So this is the courage to do the right thing, mm. which is why it cannot uh. be decoupled from, uh, from, from uh, justice. And in fact, even from temperance, because the right thing, which is you, you, what you call self-control, because uh, the right thing needs to be done also in the right measure. So let me give you an example, a specific example. Let's say that uh, tomorrow I get back to work and I see my boss uh, that is harassing a coworker, which he would never do. He's a nice guy. But <laughs> um, let's say that I witnessed that. Then the question is, should I intervene and how? Right. So the Stoic consults the four cardinal virtues as kind of a moral compass, right? So the first virtue is uh, practical wisdom. And practical wisdom basically is the ability to navigate uh, complex situations in the best way possible. 
And so practical wisdom tells me that, yes, I probably should intervene, but I need to be careful about how I intervene because I want to help people. I don't want to make the situation worse. Mm. Does it take courage? Well, yes, because to intervene on behalf of my coworker and trying to defuse the situation, I might, by doing so, I might actually get on the wrong side of my boss, which means there may be repercussions down the, down the road. So it takes courage. Is it the right thing to do? Is it, is it just? Well, justice for the Stoic is treating other people with fairness, respect, and reciprocity. So I have to ask myself, would I like, if I were the one to be uh, arrest. Would I like somebody else to intervene? And the answer is yes. Well, if I do, if I like somebody to intervene uh, on my behalf, then clearly I need to be, be to intervene on somebody else's behalf. So, so there's and an element. About, of, I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off, but the, yeah. there's so there's an element of golden rule here, like uh, do unto others. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Exactly. It's a kind of a reciprocity issue. And then finally, there's there's temperance. Well, temperance tells me that I need to. At this point, I know that I have to intervene. But I have a range of options, right? So on at one extreme, I can simply mutter something under my breath so that my boss doesn't actually hear me, <laughs> right? So technically, I intervened, but in reality, I didn't do anything. And so it's like, no, that's not good. Uh, at the opposite extreme, I might jump into this thing, into the situation, and start punching my boss on the nose, right? <laughs> like, but, but that's too much. That, that, the situation doesn't require that. There is no physical threat there. Uh, there is only verbal abuse, uh, and so reacting that way is too much. So temperance tells me that I want to chart a course in between those two extremes. So I want to come in with a firm voice, trying to diffuse the situation calmly, as calmly as possible, but, but very clearly so that I'm actually heard by, by both people. So the intervent, the, side, the, the, the decision to intervene and how to intervene is the result of my quick consultation inside my mind of, with, the, with the four cardinal virtues. And they go in unison. Mm. If one of them tells me this is not a good thing to do, I probably shouldn't do it because it, that, that signals that there's something there that I, that I should stay away from. So socialism is a, 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 a form of situation ethics. Are, are there, I mean, it would, is it fair to say that? Are, are there any kind of absolutes at all? You know, a thou shalt not uh, so to speak, or is it all good, sort of very good question? Very good question. I think not just stoicism, but virtue ethics in general is situational. Mm. Now, situational doesn't mean that anything goes. It, it's not. It's not a license toward moral relativism. That oh well, it's your opinion, my opinion. Who cares? Right. Um, that is not what it, what situational means. Situational means literally it depends on the situation. So if the question is, you know, what is the right thing to do, then the, the answer is always well, it depends. It depends on what. It depends on who the actors are at play, what are they doing, what, what their motivations presumably are, and what the possible consequences of your actions are going to be. And so uh, the same exact action may, for a Stoic may have different uh, meanings. For instance, let's say that I decide to volunteer to the local soup uh, kitchen, right? Mm -hmm. Now, you might, might, might say, well, that's a no-brainer. That's a clearly a good thing to do. That's a clearly a, a virtuous action. But for the Stoic, the question is, well, wait a minute, why are you doing it? If, if I'm doing that because I generally want to help people, right, then yes, it is a virtuous action. But if I do it because I need an additional line on my resume that shows that I volunteered for nonprofit organizations so that I can get a better job, in other words, I don't actually give a crap about helping people, right. then it's not a virtuous action. Right, it's right. the same exact action, but it's not virtuous. Right. So, so your intention is important. Correct. 
Intentions are crucial. And this goes back to the dichotomy of control. Why is it that intentions as opposed to outcomes are crucial? Not because the outcomes don't matter. A lot of people, uh, a lot of critics of stoicism misunderstand this point and think that, oh, you don't care about the consequence. Of course I care about the consequence. <laughs> yeah. I want to help diffuse the situation with my boss and the, and the person he's harassing. I want to be helpful to the people in the, in the soup kitchen. However, outcomes are not under my control because they depend on the actions of other people. They depend on external factors that I don't control. On the other hand, intentions definitely are under my control. Hmm. And that's why there is a focus on intentions and not on outcomes. Okay. Let me ask you something about things that we can't control. Um, when I was thinking about this uh, uh, in preparation for our talk, I thought about things that are beyond my control that I care about, like sports. Should I not care about sports because it's beyond my control? That's a great question. Uh, the Stoics actually do say, don't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't care. <laughs> Uh, both That's Marcus a tough sell right there. That's I know. Right. <laughs> both Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus say, you know, if you have to, just go to the stadium, you know, go to the, to the Circus Maximus in the case of Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> but don't, don't care whether the green team wins or the white teams. It's like it, oh. it, the, whatever team wins, wins. <laughs> it's, it's outside of your control. I now, was afraid you were going to say that. Go yeah, ahead. well, that's that. I'm a, I'm a big soccer fan, for instance, you know, AS Roma uh, uh, supporter. Hmm. And so how do I reconcile that with the stoic attitude? I actually use watching, I, I watch occasionally uh, soccer games, and uh, I approach the soccer game with a stoic, the stoic attitude in, in this particular, with this twist. Not that I don't care. I do prefer my team to win. Right. Right. But at the beginning of the game, I tell, I tell myself, look, the outcome is entirely outside of your control. Hmm. And it is the combination of who the best team is as, and luck. Because as hmm. we all know in sports, you know, sure, typically the, ball, the best team The ball team bounces wins. a way that you right. can predict sometimes, right? Exactly. The, the Italians say, la palla è rotonda, the ball is round, which means that it can bounce <laughs> all over the place and right, you don't right, control right. it, right? And so then it becomes an, act, uh, an exercise in uh, just how well can I handle disappointment, right? So if my team loses, it's like, oh, well, I tell myself, well, you know, they didn't play well, or this time they were not lucky. Right. Contrary wise, if they win, I don't just go all over and say, ah, yeah, uh, we are yeah. So better than much. everybody else. I said, well, this time they played well, they were the mm. better team, or this time they got lucky. And uh, it's, it becomes, it, it turn, you turn a activity of watching sports into an exercise, basically. In yeah. And, and I actually can, I have experienced similar, uh, a, a, I would say a, like a narrowing window of my emotions when it comes yeah. to sports now. So, the, yeah, the lows aren't quite as low when my team loses, but the highs aren't as high either. I'm not, you know, it's just. I mean, it's still great. I want my team to yeah. win, and when it does, yeah, exactly. it's fun. But I'm not going crazy over it, you know. And exactly. And you know, the typical uh, answer that I get in these situations is like, "But aren't you losing something by narrowing?" As you put it, it that's exactly right. You narrow uh, the emotional spectrum. You, mm. you cut out the very low parts, but you also cut out the very high parts. Right. And my response in the case specifically of sports is like, 
you think that I should act like those crazy people <laughs> who think that it's really a big deal if their team loses or, or wins and who occasionally become so upset about it that they become actually violent towards right. the people, you know, supporters. I don't think so. Yeah. If that's, if that's the kind of extreme, you know, high that you're talking or low that you're talking about, no, thank you. I'd rather not. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there because, I, you know, I, like when I was a kid, I, you know, I grew up in Alabama. I went to the University of Alabama as an undergrad. And uh, so you might be aware that they're pretty good at football. And so, like, yep. you know, I, when I was a kid, we would play Auburn, our rival. And by and, football, of course, you mean American football. Yes, not soccer. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, you're Well, you live in America. You, you, you know what, yep. what I mean. Um, but um, I would, like, cry if Alabama lost to Auburn. Right. You know? But now it's like, eh, it's just a game, you know. What's for dinner? You know, I just exactly. Um, exactly. Now it becomes really difficult, however, when so when you apply that to more important things in life, right? Hmm. So the Stoic would also will say the Stoics will also say, yeah, that's the right attitude, and you should apply that that attitude also when you know a loved one dies. Like, hmm. well, it's the universe; things you know shit happens. Right? Right. That is where a lot of people have trouble. You know, Epictetus at one point says. Uh, when you when you kiss your wife or your daughter goodnight, remember that they're mortals, and they they might die. You might never see them again. And if you do that, then you will not be disturbed. He says, if they actually do die. And he's like, wait a minute. What do you mean I shouldn't be disturbed <laughs> if my loved ones die? And, you know, is, was is this guy a, a psychopath or something like that? But he's not. He's coming from the point of view of Stoic metaphysics as it was understood 2000 years ago. Mm. And that is actually one of the things that I reject in, in modern Stoicism. So the ancient Stoics thought that the universe is a living organism endowed with what they call the logos, that is an ability to act rationally. Right. If that's true, then by definition, we are bits and pieces of the universal organism. We're like cells in, mm. inside this gigantic organism and therefore, Whatever happens to us is for the good of the organism. We're helping the organism doing things, even though it may be unpleasant for us. And Victorus uses an interesting metaphor. He says, imagine you're a foot that is about to step into the mud. If you think of that situation only as a foot, you'd say, I don't want to step in the mud. That's disgusting. Why, why would I want to do that? Mm -hmm. But then you remember that you're not just a foot. You are connected to a whole organism, a body. And the body needs to get home. And the only way to get home is for for you to step into the mud. At that point, not only you do it because it's your duty as a foot, you actually embrace it because you're doing the right thing for the entire organism, right? Now, that's a beautiful thought. And that's where, that's, that's the source, that metaphysical understanding of how the world works is the source of stoic providence. That is why Epictetus says, you know, you shouldn't be distraught if your loved ones are dying because whatever happens is for the good of the universe. Mm. Well, that's great. I wish I could believe that, um, but I don't. I'm a scientist in the 21st century. I don't believe for a minute that the universe is a living organism endowed with logos. We are not bits. And, we are bits and pieces of the universe in a general sense. Because, right. Yes, of course, we're within the universe, but we're not organically connected to the full body in the way that the Stoics thought. Mm -hmm. Therefore, if my wife or daughter should die, or when they they, they will die assuming that I'm going to be around uh, to see it, then I cannot afford not to be distraught. Mm. But I can still tell myself, 
this is what happens. They, we, we're all mortal and mortals, and we, we are, need to be prepared to die. So I don't have the luxury that Epictetus had of being actually embracing my fate, but I certainly still have the option to accept my fate and try to move on because it is a natural, normal thing. You know, people die. I will well, die at some point. Well, that actually, that's a perfect segue to, to one of the last questions I wanted to ask you is that, uh, you know, you're talking about if a loved one dies. Uh, in, in that New York Times article I mentioned at the, uh, in the introduction, you, you state that stoicism speaks directly to a lifelong preoccupation of yours right. and of mine and of, I dare say, most people. And that is the inevitability of our own demise, our own death, and how to prepare for it. Here's my question. How do I prepare for it? <laughs> um, two ways. You, you do two things. First of all, you occasionally uh, meditate, reflect, uh, remind yourself that you are mortal and it will happen. In other words, we need to take seriously this thing. A lot of people just take it out of their minds. Right. I don't want to think about death. I don't want to be exposed to death. I don't want to. No. On the, on the contrary, the Stoics would say you need to face not only your own mortality, but other people's mortality. Mm -hmm. So when you're, some of your, you know, let's say your parents or, or your grandparents end up in the hospital or in the hospice and then, and then they die, you really should be there. And yeah. you should be paying attention. And you should remind yourself uh, consciously, this is likely what's going to happen to me. Mm -hmm. Now, this may not be fun, but what it does is it prepares you mentally for when that's going to happen. That's one thing. But that's only once in a while. Only occasionally you do that. Sort of thing. Most of the other time, you remind yourself that, hey, I am mortal. That means I don't have an infinite amount of time. So how am I spending my time today? Mm. What am I doing that I actually enjoy and actually think it's meaningful, that I actually think makes a difference? And what am I doing, by contrast, that I don't think it's meaningful, it's a waste of time, and therefore I probably shouldn't do it? Right? Mm. So there is a lot of research, actually, in modern psychology about uh, people dying or people at the end of their life and uh, about what is it they regret and what, they, and what is it that they actually, they actually are satisfied about their life. And I guarantee you, nobody regrets uh, not having spent more time on Facebook. Uh, <laughs> you get that or, right. Right? Or, or more time in a meeting at the office. Or it's like, you know, ah, damn, you know, imagine yourself on the, on the deathbed and, and say, you know, I really should. I can't believe I didn't send time. that tweet. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, right. What do people regret? Uh, mostly relationships, yeah. not having been good enough or close enough to their children, to their spouse, to their partner, to their parents and so on and so forth. As well as not having spent enough of their time during their life doing things that were meaningful to them. Like the, like the two of us are doing right now. Right? I mean, we could be doing all sorts of other things, right? right. Uh, and yet, we are talking to each other. Why? Well, I don't know about you because I can't read your, your mind and your <laughs> motivations. But, but in my mind, that's because I think people will, might, might actually benefit from this conversation. And doing something that benefits other people and at the same time is interesting to me because I'm generally interested, of course, in this, uh, you know, in ancient Greek and Roman philosophy. This is great. This is, a, this is the way I want to spend yeah. know, my time. My, my wife actually said something. This was a few months ago, but it's stuck in my head and it's, it's along these lines. She said, you know, I don't remember any of the stuff I ever bought, you know, like, and I, I was thinking like, 
and I, that made me think like, oh yeah, like a long time ago, I remember I was kind of excited when I bought a Blackberry, you know, those phones mm. that nobody has anymore. But like, right. I have not even thought about it since then. And then but she said, I don't remember the stuff I bought, but I remember the places I've traveled to and I remember the relationships I've had, you know, yeah. and, and it just really kind of highlighted me like that's the important stuff in life is, is experience is relationships and interactions. And uh, you said in one of your talks that one of the things that uh, how humans are distinct from other animals is uh, one, our our capacity to be rational. And the other was uh, that we're, we're highly social. There are other social animals in the animal kingdom, but we are by far the most complex and social of all the animals that exist. Exactly. Which is why uh, the Stoics motto is, uh, or mantra, is live according to nature. And by that, they meant those two things combined. Uh, Human nature is distinguished primarily by the fact that we are capable of reason. That doesn't mean we're reasonable all the time or even most of the time. But we are capable of high degrees, highly sophisticated uh, degrees of reasoning. And we are highly social. I mean, there are other animals capable of reasoning and there are other animals that are social. But the two are combined in human beings. The two are combined to an extent that is found nowhere else on the planet. Yeah. And so the Stoics thought this, that's human nature and therefore a good human life is one in which you use reason, you use that ability to solve problems for doing what? For improving society, mm. for making life be, you know, better for other people. And improving society, you know, Sounds like a big task. Like, well, who am I? I'm not the president of the United States. I'm not going to be able to improve society. But yes, you can because you improve society by treating, by relating to other people, the, the people you love, your friends, your, right. your colleagues, your, your wife, as I said, you, you know, your children. That's how you improve society. You, if, imagine if everybody were mindfully trying to treat better other, the people that they know. Then, then this would be a far better place than it is. Yeah, I've said that before on the program. Like, you know, when I talk about changing the world, I don't mean like you have to go be Gandhi or Mother Teresa. Uh, right. I, I'm change your world. Do something nice for your coworker or your spouse or you know family member or your friend or whatever. Change your world, and that, you know, it's a ripple effect. <laughs> it changes yep. the world. Well, professors, uh, thank you so much. What do you have going on now? Like, where can people find you? Are you on social media? Uh, you know, where yeah. can they buy your books? What, you know, what's <laughs> your you. latest book? Yeah, I'm all, all over the place, but the, the, the best place to find me is a um, site called philosophy as a way of life dot blog. Okay. And there you will find uh, links to my social media. I'm on Twitter and Facebook to my books, to my articles, my podcasts, everything in terms of books. Uh, the latest one that came out recently uh, last year is called, Think Like a Stoic, Ancient Wisdom for Today's World. And it's actually not really a book. It's a, it's a series of lectures that I prepared for the teaching company. But it is distributed by Audible as, a, as an audiobook. And so that people might want to check that one out. It's a complete course on the history, philosophy, and practice of Stoicism. Nice. And then hopefully by the end, uh, by September, uh, there will be, my new book will come out. It's called The Quest for Character what the story of Socrates and Alcibiades teaches us about our search for good leaders. And, and it's about leadership. It's about the interaction between politics and ethics. Uh, and I had a lot of fun writing it. So I'm hoping that people will enjoy it. Well, I've had a lot of fun uh, discussing this with you today. Uh, it's, it's been a blast. I'll, uh, I'll send this out with a quote. I'll quote you. Um, it, this is also from that New York Times article. 
in the end, stoicism is simply another path some people can try out in order to develop a more or less coherent view of the world, of who they are, and of how they fit in the broader scheme of things. The need for this sort of insight seems to be universal. Indeed, it is a universal pursuit, and I appreciate you helping us get there today, Professor. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun.